and welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Bernadette Hunter, who is Head of Global Sales and Customer Success at Flavor Cloud. And the reason I think everyone's going to enjoy listening to Bern is that she recently made the transition from being a very successful senior account executive to now managing a global sales and customer success team. And that's a transition that many of us in sales want to go through or have been through at one point. And so I think it's going to be a really exciting podcast. Bern, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the pod. How are you doing? Thank you, Arnie. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. We haven't had a chance to connect in a while, so I'm excited to chat. Bern, maybe just start off, give some background on Flavor Cloud. Like, What's the problem that Flavor Cloud solves? Sure. So what Flavor Cloud does, it's a, it's a SaaS platform for e-commerce merchants. What we do is we help make international cross-border shipping easy, affordable, and friction-free. We basically help merchants of any size figure out how to sell their products into other countries across borders. Bern, you know, it's interesting. Like, I can really see now why your role is global sales and customer success because it's a fairly flavor cloud's a fairly early stage company right it's not uh, i think it was like series a series b is that correct it is we're series a we close our series a in may of 2021 and i started june uh, a few weeks later actually yeah and i think the, the nature of the business clearly you have to go global if you're going to help with international cross-border shipping 200 countries it's kind of inherently global. So we'll cut, let's get to that a bit later. But I think I'd love to start with, you know, I've known you for a long time. You are one of the great salespeople I ever worked with. I always use you as like a reference when I'm helping someone in their sales career. So like, let me tell you about my friend Bern and the the way she was organized and the discipline and the way that she run a QBR and all the kind of things that I watched you do and, and was super impressed with. Now I'm talking to you and you're Head of uh, sales and customer success. What was that trend? How did you, that transition come about? Because it's very hard for salespeople sometimes to jump into management. And then it's very different. And I'm just curious, like, how did it come about for you? And how have you found the transition? What have you learned from it? So it came about similarly to your experience. My CEO, the founder of our company, uh, Rathna Sharad, I actually worked with her at Microsoft 15, 16 years ago. And her experience was similar to yours. I was a really great IC who did amazing things for the Microsoft ad business at the time. And we, I actually did get to lead a team at Microsoft of about six sellers when we were doing the wind down of a product they had called Bing Cashback. And Rothna was you know, deeply in that as well. And she had reached out to me a couple years ago and she was looking to hire her first sales head. And she and I had a couple conversations. And then when she started courting me again, early 2021, um, and for context for you and I, Rothna also had a startup called Runway to Street, which is the predecessor to Flavor Cloud. Hmm. And you may recall, she bought ads from me at Polyvore. <laughs> so we went from working together at Microsoft to working together at Polyvore. And now she's my boss. And I think just the way you believed in me, I think had we worked together longer, I have every confidence that you saw that I could have been a great leader and Rathna saw that in me as well. So the transition from IC to leading has definitely been 
a big learning experience for me, I think. And what is very stereotypical of me, I I didn't do things halfway. Not only did I move from IC to sales leader, but I went from a completely different vertical. I went from advertising into logistics, which I knew absolutely nothing about. And going from ads to SaaS, I had never been a SaaS seller before. And some of the things that really surprised me and I love about SaaS is that the sales process is so different. I think a lot of the people I know, whether they're still at Facebook or Snap or TikTok, um, any of these ad platforms, most of us worked in sort of the enterprise tier where you have an assigned account that you're either prospecting or you're selling to. And there's no SDRs. I've never had an SDR work under me as a seller ever. And to see the way they mine for gold, basically, the way they use all of these amazing tool sets to build pipeline has been a revelation to me. And I wish, I had wished, if I had had access to outreach as an ad salesperson, I can't even imagine what I would have been able to do. But it's fun now to enable new people that have never used the tech stack we have to see them gain that efficiency. It's really interesting what you mentioned there, how the process is so different, the stack is so different, the team structure is so different. You know, like in media, it's the norm for an AE to their own prospecting and their own closing. In SaaS, it's very much the norm for SDRs to do prospecting and AEs to do closing. And then in media, the stack is pretty simple. It's like the customers are pretty known. You know, you know who spends money on advertising because you can see their ads. <laughs> There's various companies that track it. And and then the the buyers are quite easy to find on LinkedIn. And really, it's just like, it's just how do you get into the consideration set because you're competing with so many other people, right. but but the budget is established. And then I find in SaaS, like the budget's not established quite often. So you're yeah. selling something that's net new. And so the whole purchase process is very different. Like in media, it's like, okay, I'm planned out for the year. No, you're not. You have a test budget. Okay. How do I get in the test budget? You get in like this. How much is the test budget? It's 5K. Okay, great. We kind of, everyone knows the rules of the game. But yeah. SaaS hasn't doesn't really have that yet, and I think it yeah it does require a very different di- different um, outreach process. Also, I find in, in you know you mentioned being in an enterprise tier. I'm curious with Flavor Cloud, your customer profile is not enterprise, right? It's it's more smaller business. I think you mentioned before to me like there's companies that use Shopify a lot and stuff like that. Is that right? When the company started, it the ICP was really SMB Shopify. Since I started, we've definitely done an upmarket pivot. So we can do anywhere from SMB to enterprise. We have our mm-hmm. API connections, but we also have apps for big commerce and Shopify. And you mentioned that sort of the, the, the ICPs evolved from SMB to more upmarket. What's, um, what's the kind of process you went through to figure out that there was a there there in enterprise? And enterprise means a lot of different things to different people. How do you kind of go about defining that? I think when I started, one of the first things I did was I really had to look at who was buying from us and why. And not only the why, but the how. And we had a pretty good lead process, just folks, just inbound, people installing the app, people trying the app, people shipping with us, and then looking at what that life cycle looked like. 
we hadn't really had, we didn't have sales engineers. So even though we had the API, we didn't really have sales engineers. We just had our co-founder, our CTO, who would go have these conversations. So a lot of that process was looking at who was buying from us, the size of their company. We use Zoom Info, we use store leads, we use similar web. Obviously, we're looking at international traffic. So looking at who is buying from us and looking not only at the data they told us, but what I can see through these tool sets, and then figuring out the profitability of these customers. You know, how many Zendesk tickets are they submitting? What is the effort to revenue ratio, basically? And really, we hadn't gone up market because we just didn't have the people or the processes to do that at scale. And that's one of the things I did. We really thought we were solving a problem for small businesses looking to grow to compete with the big guys where we had really undersold ourselves internally was that the same problems a small store has is the exact same problem an enterprise has. International shipping is hard for everybody. It's a terrible process It's death by a thousand cuts. It doesn't matter if you're a GAP or if you're a Baltic born. The problem remains the same for everyone. That's really interesting and also kind of unusual. You normally find that going up market, the problem gets more complicated and therefore your product has to get more complicated as well. you, You haven't found that? No, I think international trade is a wildly complex problem but it doesn't discriminate based on the size of the business. That is really what makes it different for us. The only thing in the sales cycle that changes between SMB mid-market and enterprise is onboarding. And that we can solve for. It's whether you're doing a 30-minute Shopify plugin and you're live in a day versus doing an API integration into your warehouse's warehouse management system, that may take three months. So That's the only thing that gets a little different. And that always comes back to project managing your deals. And is that some project management, something that your AE does? Both my AE and the assigned account manager and the sales engineer for larger deals, they all work together. Um, You mentioned the, you know, like the the core pain point that you're solving, like you seem to describe it very clearly and very well. How do you kind of work that into your prospecting motion? And what does your prospecting motion look like today? It's pretty streamlined. So when we look at our ICP, we do split out a few different profiles. It really, for the most part, is Shopify and big commerce. There's the app folks, and then there is the APIs. So the sales cycle for those two are going to be very different. Obviously, right now in retail, we're going into Q4, we're going into code freeze. Most folks who want to get live in the next couple of months They have to be on one of these platforms because getting an API integration is not going to happen for holiday. So basically, we pull down information from store leads. We look at their platform. We look at their plan. We look at their domestic traffic. We look at their international traffic. I will also look at things like um, their annual revenue, their estimated monthly revenue from their store. And then we'll just pull down contacts. We'll put them in. Outreach sequences, I think I've learned so much just from my, I have a rock star SDR that I just got to promote to AE. And she has done such an amazing job of making sure that we're cutting through the noise. She also has done a really great job leveraging tools. 
the personalization that she puts into these touches is phenomenal. We do not automate emails to look like they're from a machine. We will read your LinkedIn. We will read your posts. We will comment on your posts. We will add them to the sequences. We will do pretty standard seven to nine touch sequence um, to book a demo with one of the sales reps. And then that kicks off the sales process. What I continuously am surprised at is it doesn't matter the size of the business. And frankly, this is why Flavor Cloud has done so well. Even people that do touch some sort of international shipping or are already shipping internationally may not have any idea what delivering duties paid is or how it benefits their business. So we try to really focus on these are the problems we see. Is this something you feel? We also try to not lead with trying to book a meeting. I think that's a common mistake most SDRs make is here's my calendar link or do you have time to chat? No, I want to talk about your problem. I don't necessarily need you to get on the phone with me in that first email to make that happen. Yeah. Like email is literally a substitute for a phone call. <laughs> it's like, well, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. but Ben, it's, it, I love what you said there. There were two things that really stood out. One was you mentioned multiple research steps. I feel like so many um, sales development teams do not do research before they do outreach. They'll just like get account list, go in Zoom info, put the contacts in Zoom info, and like the per and then the personalization is you know the stuff we all see and throw up over like because of your job as head of global customer success and sales at Flavor Cloud, we think we should talk. You know, it's like so bad. And you said like you do you do not automate any of that work. It's all done kind of methodically, which tells me there's a real focus on quality over quantity at Flavor Cloud and. Yeah, curious, like what kind of results do you see because you've taken that approach? I think we have done really well. Our open rates are great. Our meeting bookings are okay. What I hadn't anticipated is another learning from moving from ad sales into SaaS. The tech stack that is involved in running an e-commerce site and the number of people that are pinging those e-commerce directors, those VPs of e-com, that list is almost endless. If you look at the e-commerce retail ecosystem, it is humongous. So unlike in the ad space where you're really dealing with maybe 10 maximum platforms, and then at that point, you're really looking at networks, I think that has been surprising to me. So that is really why we've been using um, Alice and Postal to sort of stand out and make it worth their while in doing the gifting campaigns. Oh, tell us about, you mentioned Alice, like the name Alice? A-L-Y-C-E. A-L-Y-C-E and Postal. What Tell us about those. I haven't heard about those. So it's sort of like Sendo. So they're gifting platforms that allow you to drop into your outreach sequences or directly just say, hey, book a meeting with me, $50 gift card sort of things. The interesting thing about Alice is, it's kind of creepy, but we worked in advertising, so we know creepy when we see creepy, but it can basically crawl through the socials of any of the prospects and say, oh, this person likes dogs, this person likes travel, um, this person is a foodie, and it will dynamically recommend gifts you could send to that person at the end of the booking link. Uh, we just switched to Postal instead of Alice, which I'm actually really happy about because Postal is actually one of our merchants that ships internationally with us. 
Uh, we just switched to them recently, but same, same general concept. They're less creepy, but same general concept. Yeah. Looking at your social, figuring out what you like, isn't that basically Facebook's entire business? <laughs> it, it, it was, <laughs> I'm not proud of it. Honestly, I, I mean, it still is, it still is. It's like, it looking, still is looking at what you like and trying to send you ads based on it. That's basically Instagram today. So yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. You're clearly like your instincts from ads, which is really like consumer. It's yeah. a consumer business. The instincts that you have, I think these are things that in SaaS people are just starting to pick up on. Like I'm always surprised how B2B marketing feels like B2C was 10 years ago. Oh, we're going to send you to a microsite and you download something yeah. and collect your email address. And it's so much more sophisticated in B2C because it has to be because it's a lower margin industry, if you like. Yeah. Whereas in B2B, you can spend $400 on an email address. At the end of the day, it's going to be worthwhile. And it's, it's interesting how you're taking consumer marketing ideas and bringing them in to your B2B go-to market to stand out and have an edge. Yep. And yeah, I wonder if you've seen anything else like that like, or anything else that comes to mind that you know works really well in consumer that you think B2B should start doing. I know you and I both share a background in performance advertising. And I think what I see B2B trying to do well and maybe not hitting the mark is that aspect of it. Not that they don't do performance marketing. They just don't necessarily think like performance marketers. You know, we're looking at CAC and things like that. We're sitting in board meetings talking about acquisition cost, but I tend to want to be more aggressive with those things. You know, my job is to help people ship efficiently cross-border, help them sell to every country they want to sell to overnight. I can help them set up the shipping, setting up the shipping, getting them through customs, getting new new customer acquisitions in countries they may not have forecasted for. Like that's all net new revenue. That's incremental growth. They may not have the resources or the understanding for how to market in those countries. Do you set up your Facebook ads now to go global? Do you now take your PPC ads and target, you know, Israel separately? How do you set up those campaigns? And because we have those friends, we have those resources at every single one of the major platforms. I can help them with the shipping. I need you to help me help them with the advertising. Because if we can get them doing this really well, it, they'll all be unstoppable. Like I think that flywheel is what's missing. And I think most B2B marketers don't think beyond content gating. They're just trying to get that email address. And great, for, for top of funnel, that's perfect. But when you acquire the customer and they are your customer and you think about QBRs and helping them grow, I think there's things outside of your areas of expertise that, you know, when you look at the Venn diagram of partnership potential, that's where things really get interesting for me. That's super interesting. You know, like the area of fascination for me as well is how uh, in B2B, it's all about getting an email address, uh, a known, whatever, and then maybe getting a demo request. But because the sales cycle can be so long from, you know, or the attribution window is so long that the marketing team is like, well, I can't, I don't, you know, I can't measure the success of this quarter until like the end of next quarter. Yeah. And so they just continue to focus on filling the top of the funnel because they can measure it. The attribution window to, to acquire an email is like, you know, a week or whatever. And and then you also have this really siloed 
uh, orgs usually where marketing reports to the CEO, especially early stage sales reports to the CEO, some CS reports yeah. to the CEO, CEO. And the CEO doesn't have time to really coordinate across all three of those. And so they go, well, marketing, are you getting leads? Great. Sales, are you closing deals? Great. Oh, but why are we not growing revenue? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's this, um, it's this attribution window is it's just so long. There are some interesting things going on now, like uh, LinkedIn, which is the biggest beneficiary of B2B spend, as far as I can tell, uh, is has now um, building integrations with Salesforce so that you can pull in the the opportunity data and uh, eventually, you know, did the opportunity close, you know, move to a close one. I'm kind of surprised that LinkedIn is doing that. And my friend works on the ads team there and he was telling me about it. And I was like, do you really want to do that? Like, isn't that going to expose how your know, stuff's not as good as you think it is? <clears throat> and he said, you know what? There's nowhere else where you can buy this audience. It doesn't really matter. It just makes people feel better. Yeah. And so I think it's it's interesting, you know, obviously there's such a strong position that they're willing to provide more transparency on the ROI, even if it's not going to be that great. Like I, I consulted, I told you, I have 35, 40 companies over the last couple of years Yeah. where I would download their Salesforce data, all their ops, lead source, everything, and just look at like which lead sources drove deals. And I tell you what didn't drive closed one was LinkedIn ads. Never. Yeah. And then the other thing that didn't really work was events. And, and the only lead source that predictably drove, um, drove closed one deals was Google. And so it's kind of, it's fascinating to me how much money spent on LinkedIn on an events because it feels good, but because you can't really measure it, you, you're just going to, you're like, it makes sense. I'm just going to keep doing it, but it doesn't actually make a difference. Um, it doesn't make a, a difference that can be measured today. And I really I think somebody. Say- Someone has to figure that. Someone has to figure that out. Yeah. Like how to, like how to do multi-touch attribution really well in B two B. Like I feel like it. It came in B two C when we were working at Polyvore. Like people were starting getting first touch, second touch. So that was like six, seven years ago. Yeah. And now, it, now it's like everyone's kind of got multi-touch models. But in B two B, is a long way to go. I think. I think so. When I I worked at Facebook from 2011 to 2013. And I sold their first performance ad. And as you were saying that, I was getting a little like, <laughs> you know, view through attribution was the thing that we sold at Facebook in 2012. And that's exactly what that is, right? You said, you know, LinkedIn didn't drive the sale. And in my head, this will tell you how much it was hammered in my head. I was like, but but it did. <laughs> they saw it. Even with the outreach touches that we do, you know, in our sequence, there is you go like a post by the person. Oh, two days later, you go comment on the post. Bern, you mentioned earlier to me that one of the first things you did when you joined Flavor Cloud was switch from HubSpot to Salesforce. Why? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Where do I start? Um I think HubSpot was great. We still have HubSpot for marketing automation. We kept it for that. And they sync back and forth together really seamlessly. I think HubSpot didn't give us the granularity um, and the tool sets that we really wanted to be best in class. HubSpot was missing a few key features that we really wanted. You know, it was sort of, we just out, we outgrew it, frankly. Totally on the same page as you. Like, I think HubSpot is is like, it's like Marketo or... A very fancy MailChimp does a lot more, obviously, than something like MailChimp. But it's like a, it's great for for campaign management, but it's absolute pants for sales teams. You can't do anything. 
<laughs> like, like one of the classic things you do in sales is say, where in my sales process is a deal falling down? At which stage? You can't actually do that in um, HubSpot. Whereas in Salesforce, you can just, Salesforce is not super easy, but you can download the stage to stage conversion kind of movements right. and then, and then figure it out. But it, yeah, it's really, and so you can't run a sales team with that because you don't know where to coach. Yeah. You know, should I be working on disco? Should we working on propose? Like, nope. how long is it stuck in the stage for? You, know, you can't optimize your sales process at all. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. How HubSpot just tries to position itself as a CRM. And in, in for a sales team, but like everyone has the same problem that you had. Like it's great for marketing, but not just stay there, you know, don't, don't get yeah. into sales. Yeah. It, it definitely has value. I think we'll probably keep it for marketing automation for a while. Eventually we'll probably move beyond it for that too. But it does, the one thing HubSpot does better than sale, it's just easier to read through historical emails and activities. Mm. but everything else, literally everything else is harder. <laughs> and if you're not reporting, if you're not measuring it, you can't fix it to your point. Yeah. Trying to read a task, an outreach task in Salesforce is like, you need a XML parser or something. It's just all this junk in there. Exactly. And it's like squished into a, you know, one inch wide column. And that's like four feet long. Yeah. yeah. I don't know exactly what you mean. Oh, we, it's great. I mean, we talked about tools here. You've mentioned some really good tools on, um, you know, for around research. I, I love the moment you said, uh, yeah, we pull down information. We look at the international traffic reader. I was like, I can know exactly where she's going. Like she's thinking about getting in the head of the customer, the problem they have. Like you have a bunch of people coming to you from India, but you don't ship there. We can help you. Like that kind yeah. of message. It's like just make it's It's so logical, but it's incredible how so many SaaS companies just don't do that. Cause they, they just go, Oh, you're a CRO. You should buy my sales software. Like yeah. some rep from Chili Piper. It's been very creative with me. He's going through my demo flow and going, you shouldn't use Calendly. You should use Chili Piper. I'm like, look on LinkedIn. I've got like four salespeople. Like it's just not big, you know, but yeah. they're just like, Oh, bang, bang, bang. Um, and, it, and by the way, I'm calling him out because he's actually doing a better job than 95% of the other people that pitch me, but it's just like, it's not relevant. So I, I really love how you're, you, you mentioned in the re research, they're using tools to actually personalize, not trying to automate everything. Cause at the end of the day, we're talking to humans. Um, I'm curious, we talked about prospecting as well. I mean, I'm curious, like understanding your sales process, because I imagine your products kind of like very much usage based. You want it, once you get a customer, you want them to use it more and more and more. And that's how you grow. And so how do you think about sales process? Like the, what does a closed one deal look like? What does that initial impact look like? And then what is the recurring impact? Yeah, it's it's not too radically different, I think, from most usage-based SaaS models. It's basically prospect, demo, slash pitch, verbal, nego or negotiate, verbal, close. And then once the deal is closed one, it kicks off the onboarding process or it's literally an onboarding case in Salesforce. And then it really becomes depending on the size of the merchant. So we we will tier merchants as well. So the onboarding process for an enterprise merchant and an SMB are going to be radically different. But usually it's onboarding kickoff, um, integration, uh, testing, doing a few test shipments, test carts, making sure everything is running smoothly. And then first shipment date, First time they use a flavor cloud label and commercial invoices 
customs documentation. That's our that's our real closed one. First shipment date. Everything then becomes under the ownership of my CX team. And that's where things get really fun because that really is how do we grow adoption. And that is where tools like SimilarWeb, to your point, come in really handy because we can see what countries are they getting a ton of traffic for that they weren't monetizing. And I think this also comes back to why my former advertising head is it's going to be cheaper to buy a click in India than it is going to be to buy one in Canada. So where's the margin growth there? And how do you basically arbitrage that to the betterment of their business? And that's what my team brings to the table. It's not only just looking at how they have their store set up, um, what their international visitor experience looks like in the store, currency conversion, language localization, but how do we optimize that process every step of the way? I love that you said first shipment date is our real closed one. It's like they're seeing the impact of what they bought from you. And I like how you said that that's actually closed one, because if you never get them there, they're going to churn, aren't they? Yeah. And so many onboarding flows or onboarding processes are about saying, here's the keys to the platform. Here's your login. Here's a training uh, session or whatever. But they don't actually say, and here it worked. Yeah. You were able to do the job that you thought you, that you hired us to do or you bought our software to do. Look, it's working. It's so important the way that you said that that first impact, that's really when you've closed one, the deal. What does, um, QBR look like at Flavor Cloud because I, I know that you yeah. are the queen of QBRs because I've been in a few with you and just been like this is great I don't have to do anything Burns got it under control so yeah it's I do I love our QBRs I actually had one with uh, one of our merchants yesterday and we do a few things it's really first of all looking at your actual performance. Um, then it's looking at the opportunities and optimizations, and then it is looking at roadmap. And then um, we'll actually throw in our marketing team as well, because a lot of what we can do is also using our marketing team to help them grow. But we really take a look at what their shipment volume was, what their AOV was, if there are opportunities to implement uh, free shipping or flat rate shipping rules. We'll even look so far as uh, if their packages are being weighed correctly. If you're accidentally saying your package weighs three pounds more than it actually does at fulfillment, you're overcharging for shipping at checkout and your conversion rate isn't as high as it could be. So those are also the sorts of things my team looks at. Um, but they really come to the table. I won't say I learned this completely from you, but you definitely, you are the lead with data guy <laughs> in my head. And that's what I do in every single one of the QBRs. We tell the story with data uh, and we put a clear action plan in place. I mean, especially when you're dealing with e-commerce, they respond very well to data and logic. Uh, yeah, lead with data. That, that's a throwback. <laughs> Isn't it? Lead with data, scalable, oh, repeatable revenue. Yeah. I think about those all the time. I'm always trying to think, how do I turn words into numbers? Because <laughs> easier to understand. <laughs> that's that's a good one. I think. Yeah, like- like I see, if I see an agenda and it's all words, I'm like, there's too much going on here. First of all, put the words into a table, then turn the words into numbers. Because then you're like, okay, this number, we need to move it. Is it moving? And it, it just, it's a great way to focus. Our QBRs are all graphs and charts. It's all graphs and charts. And we're trying to, we use Tableau. I'm trying to get to a point where 
all of the QBR data is dynamically generated based on the time frame in Tableau. And we're just like <laughs> doing screen grabs and dropping them into the decks. That's amazing. And then uh, earlier on, you mentioned that you hired a really amazing SDR and then you just hired an enterprise AE. What does that, and you got CX team, what does a team look like now? And what did it look like when you got there? I've, I had one SDR, one AE this year, like I mentioned. So I'm basically taking SDRs out of our equation and they're going to do full cycle sales now, very advertising-like. One mid-market sales AE, one enterprise outside sales AE. And then on my CX team, we have five AMs, two CS. Wow. So you're you're heavy on post-sales. Yes. It's very much like a performance marketing sales team. It that's my that's my DNA. I couldn't I, mean, I couldn't take that out of me if I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find with um if I love first of all that you're turning SDRs into full cycle reps? Like prospecting is the hardest part of sales. If someone can do that well, they can close. The well, closing closing gets difficult when you have a product that doesn't actually meet the needs of what customers want yeah. or looking for, but clearly you do. So absolutely makes sense. I also think we're going to see a lot more SaaS companies go that route now that the purse strings are tighter and you're going to see SDRs moving into sales because guess what? They're cheaper than AEs. I mean, we found that at Polyvore. Remember we had somebody who was an office manager who became a really high performing AE. And um, you know, if you've got a product that that really works, you you can you can hire less experienced people that do sales and they crush it. So yeah, Lisa, really I just I just went to Palm Springs with her a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Shout out Lisa March, crushing it in sales at Maven Clinic now. That makes me really happy every time I see her post. And then uh, this is marketing driving you leads because you mentioned doing outbound as well. Like how, what's the kind of mix there between inbound and outbound leads? It's pretty heavy outbound right now. I want to say it's probably 80-20. And then what about enablement training? Are you doing all that yourself? I am. So I do all the trainings. I do all the decks. I do new hire orientation. I wear all the hats, Arnie. I mean, I think it's great when sales leaders do their own enablement because it makes you figure out what's the minimum amount of stuff I need in the <laughs> in the deck. Yeah. And you've taught you said like how your CX deck, your QBR deck, a bunch of charts, and you'll try to automate them through Tableau. And you're really just getting down to like what is the stuff I need and not yeah. relying on some enablement team to kind of create it all for you. So I think that's great. It means you're really focused. Burn, we are running out of time here and I feel like I could ask you another hour's worth of questions. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the pod and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Arnie. Great chatting with you again as well.